Well, I really am glad to be with you tonight. It's good to be here. I didn't get a lot of break in between, but uh, I'm here, so I'm glad about that. And, you know, I've never uh, spoken at Sherwin Oaks before. I was so excited when Tom called and he was inviting me, and I said, you know, man, do I get to speak about how to live the abundant Christian life or how to, you know, share your faith or, you know, all kinds of things I could be talking about. He goes, no, we'd like you to talk about pain and suffering and evil. It was like, oh boy, all right, thank you. So here I am to talk about pain and suffering and evil. That really is our topic tonight. And I'll just start by stating the obvious. The world is not right, is it? I mean... If you want to get a glimpse into the depravity of man, just go on social media and after someone says something, just read the comments afterwards. If you ever have a doubt that we are in a fallen situation full of sin, just read the comments on social media. Uh, we live in an age where there's just no respect and where people just, you know, rather than trying to see the best in each other or trying to reach a resolution or get along, they just seem like they're ready to pick up rocks and throw them at each other. And that's just in Congress. I'm just talking about Congress. And it gets worse other places. So I mean, it's a tough situation, isn't it? Seriously, I mean, you, you see the hate, the violence, the you know, shootings becoming almost random. Wars and you know, all kinds of outbreaks of violence. And then, you know, nature flares up. We have earthquakes like what we just had in Thailand. Did you see those pictures of the buildings? I mean, just horrible. Um, hurricanes, I just spoke last weekend in Houston where, you know, they had Hurricane Harvey and just horrendous damage and, and stress on everybody with the flooding. Uh, fires, you know, this last season we had so many fires all over the uh, nation. And that's just all the big stuff. Then on a personal level, uh, so many of us are dealing with pain and uh, maybe some kind of health issues or a loss of a loved one. Um, I'll just make it personal uh, for myself. Um, about 10 years ago, actually 11 now, I met a young man. Uh, he was 24 years old at the time. I actually have a picture of him and me uh, teaching together a couple of years ago. Uh, some of you may know who he is. His name's Nabil Qureshi. Uh, he was a former Muslim, became a Christian. Uh, later, you know, about the time we did this, we were talking about his book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. It's a great book where he describes his whole journey from Islam to following Christ. Uh, and this guy is just so smart and, and so articulate, and God using him in so many ways. Uh, we became close. We taught all over the country together. Uh, he called me one of his mentors, um, and it was all a beautiful thing until this last September when we buried him in Houston at the age of 34 years old. Now, the year before that, he had been suddenly diagnosed, healthy, vibrant young man, diagnosed with stage four stomach cancer. He fought it nobly for a year, just over a year, and died leaving his wife Michelle and his little two-year-old daughter Aya. And I look at that and I go, why, God? I mean, I, I get it, you know, when someone has been here for many decades and there's an end of life, I get that. 
But this guy was 34 years old. And it's just natural to, to say, God, why would you allow that? Especially a guy like this who's serving you. He was one of the speakers with Ravi Zacharias's ministry, being used all over the world. And in keeping with this whole series that you're in, Room for Doubt, this is the kind of stuff that makes a lot of people, maybe some of us, doubt God and say either God's not good or maybe he doesn't exist at all. So let me just say, uh, I have a number of thoughts. I mean, the first thing I want to say is, you know, to quote Cliff Connectly, an evangelist and apologist who I admire a lot, he says, why would God allow a guy like Nabil to die at age 34? He said, I have a four-word response. I do not know. And I think that's a pretty good response, but I don't think Tom flew me here from Denver uh, just to say that. I mean, we could close in prayer, you know, I don't know. Um, maybe I should say a little more. I actually have quite a bit to say about it. But let me just give you a couple of preliminaries before I dive in. First of all, I just want to say, if you're in the middle of pain and, and suffering or loss, you're grieving, you know, something that has happened or, uh, to a loved one, um, a loss of some kind, I call this the question that sometimes isn't a question at all. When my daughter was about four or five years old, we brought her uh, some brand new uh, tennis shoes, or athletic shoes, and she loved them. She was so excited to put them on. It was a summer day. At that time, I lived in Illinois, and we went out. She wanted to go for a walk in front of the house, and she was so excited, and she started running along the sidewalk, and, you know, her stiff, brand-new tennis shoes caught the edge of, you know, where the sidewalk was uneven. She tripped, she fell, she got bruised up and a little, little bloodied out of it. And she's crying, she's going, why did this happen to me? Why? You know, and I had the wisdom to not say, well, let me explain, honey. They're brand new tennis shoes. They aren't broken in yet. They, they didn't bend the way they will later. And there was little elevation in the sidewalk there, and you didn't lift your foot quite high. She didn't want a scientific explanation. She didn't want a philosophical explanation. What did she really want? I don't think she wanted an answer. I think what she needed is me to hold her and say, I love you, I'm sorry, it'll be okay, you know. Uh, let's, let me see your owie, you know, let's get a Band-Aid. That you're going to feel better soon. You want ice cream? You, you know, something to show love. And if you're hurting right now, you may not really need the rest of what I'm going to say uh, near as much as you need love. You need someone to care for you. You need don't, to know God cares about you. And that's why I'm so glad we're having this conversation in a loving church where there are people who will surround you and, and be close to you and walk with you through your pain. And if that's where you're at right now, reach out and ask someone. Reach out for help. Okay? But for the rest of us, for whom this is a question, uh, one other preliminary I want to say is this. And that, that is, you know, again, the series is called Room for Doubt. And if, if you're tempted to doubt that God exists because of all the pain and suffering in the world, the evil in the world, let me encourage you to think again. In fact, I would encourage you to doubt your doubts at this point because uh, what's the alternative? You know, I remember when they're in the boat and uh, 
Jesus was talking about all these people leaving, and then he looks at Peter and says, Where, are you going to leave too? And Peter looks at him and he goes, where would I go? And I just want to tell you, when you're tempted to doubt God and say, therefore, what, what, what's the therefore? Where would you go? Atheism? Well, let me read you a quote from Richard Dawkins, the most famous atheist in the world, a militant atheist who's evangelizing people to become like him, to, to deny God. He says this about the universe we live in. He says, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom, and this is his view, by the way, no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. That's the world we live in for an atheist. Uh, and then he goes on, he says, your DNA neither knows nor cares. And you're just stuck dancing with your DNA. That is a consistent atheistic worldview. Because if, if there is no God, there is no right or wrong, there is no good or evil, uh, there is no purpose. There, you're not made for a mission. Uh, you don't have any higher calling. You don't have any calling at all. You're just lucky enough to have escaped, you know, the whole survival of the fittest uh, battle for existence. And the only reason my friend died is he was weaker. You know, he, it's, it's not really a good or bad thing. He just didn't cut it in the survival, you know, in the whole food chain and in the whole uh, evolutionary process. And I hate to even talk that way. But that's the consistent view of atheism. Again, it's blind, pitiless indifference. Because there's no one there and no one cares. Now, we can kind of encourage each other and, you know, try to, you know, shore each other up as fellow non-believers along the way if we choose that route. But it really has no meaning whether you do that or not. There is no ultimate right or wrong. In atheism, all you have is preferences. You, know, you might not like rape and murder and, you know, whatever. But someone else might, and you can't really say it's wrong if there's no objective moral standard. That's where you land if you throw out God. And unfortunately, that's where a lot of people have landed. I would encourage us to take another route and say, let's think about this a little more deeply, and that's what I want to do. Um, I want to try to shed some light on this very hard issue. And I'll use that uh, term very literally. My buddy, that, uh, as was mentioned by Sean earlier, my buddy Lee Strobel, he and I have done ministry together for 30 years. We started in Chicago at Willow Creek. Uh, we've taught all over the world together in Houston last week, in Houston next week, that's where he lives now, um, which isn't a bad place in February. Um, Lee says this, he was driving one day when he lived in Chicago with his wife Leslie, um, they were driving up the highway to Door County, some of you I'm sure have been there, and he said, as we were driving, it was raining like cats and dogs, you know, it was just horrible rain, and it was so foggy, it got to the point where he said, I was just clinging to the steering wheel and didn't know what to do because it was so foggy, I didn't dare pull over because I was afraid the car behind me would think that's the road and he would just run into me in the shoulder. So he thought, I got to stay on the road, but I can barely tell where the road is. So he's just lost in the fog and then he was so relieved when a large semi-truck that apparently was up high enough to see you know, better than he could passed him 
as he's floundering along the, the lane of the road. And as soon as that truck passed him, he thought, all I know is I can see the taillights of a truck that seems to know what he's doing and seems to know where he's going. So he said, I just locked in and stayed at a safe distance and stayed behind that truck. I followed those taillights until the fog was gone. Well, we're in a fog of a very confusing, very doubt-inducing situation when we're dealing with pain and suffering and asking questions about why God allows evil. And so what I want to do is focus on uh, not just two taillights, but some points of light. I want to briefly talk through seven points of light. In other words, seven truths that isn't, that you're not going to completely resolve it. I, there's nothing I can say that makes this go, oh, well, snap, why didn't you say that earlier? You know, now I feel good about the problem of evil. That is, that's too high of a bar. What I do want to do is shed some light on this in ways that show at least that God can be trusted, that we don't have to doubt God, and that following him is the best way through, okay? So let's look at the first point of light. Which uh, I find this encouraging, and that is that the world is just as Jesus predicted it would be. In other words, we're following a realistic faith, if you're a follower of Christ. And our Savior told the truth about the world we live in. That's important, especially when you contrast it to other religious leaders who didn't do that or who don't do that. For example, a woman named Mary Baker Eddy that about 150 years back, got quite a following. Uh, her group became known as Christian Science. Don't let it fool you. It's not Christian. It's not science. Um, a lot of well-meaning people followed her, though, into this uh, view. Mary Baker Eddy taught that sin and sickness are illusions. And if, if you follow her and her teachings, she will help you wake up from the bad nightmare and come to, sense, you know, come to terms with reality and quit believing in sin and sickness and overcome all of these things. Well, lots of well-meaning followers over the century and a half since then have believed her and have said, you know, I know it seems like I have cancer or it seems like I have whatever ailment it is, um, but I'm going to wake up from it. I'm going to overcome it through spiritual growth and discovery and so forth through Mary Baker Eddy's teaching. And I don't need medical treatment. And many have died because they refused the medical treatment that I think God would have provided through good doctors and medicine and so forth. That's delusion. Uh, similarly, in the New Age movement, you have people that will teach that, you know, whatever you believe, you can attract that to yourself. If you just keep positive thoughts and you believe good things and you expect good things, you bring that reality on yourself, which is a really attractive view when you're successful and healthy and young. Not such an attractive view when bad things start to happen to you. Because the natural question in that point of view to ask is, why are you doing this to yourself? You got cancer, you must have wanted it. Really? Um, you get this in a popular uh, form in business circles with a book called The Secret, which says whatever you, you know, your thoughts, whatever you believe, you bring upon yourself, whatever you get. 
Um, it's funny, uh, there's a woman, a friend of mine named Deb Bostwick, and uh, she's in San Diego. And I interviewed her for a curricula I was working on. She said, my mom taught me all of that. She said, my mom owned one of the earliest New Age bookstores in San Diego, and then I inherited it from her. And she said, it was, she said, absolutely that's what we believe. She said, we'd say it all the time. It's mind over matter. Your thoughts control what happened to you, happens to you. And she said, it all, that all was great when we were flourishing. She said, then we had a fire in our New Age bookstore, and it burned to the ground, and the you know, uh, firemen came, and they put out the fire. And she said, I was standing there in several inches of sludgy, dirty, ashy, you know, slushy water, looking around at the ruins of my bookstore, I mean, a beautiful bookstore that had just burned to the ground. She said, I remember the question popping into my mind. She said, I don't remember wishing this reality upon myself. I don't remember asking for this. And that was one of the first thoughts that led her to begin to question her whole belief system. And as you might guess, she ended up becoming a follower of Christ, helping other people who are deluded by this kind of stuff. I'm glad we have a Savior that tells us the truth. And he said in John 16, 33, here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. Uh, the NIV says tribulations. You, not if, when. You're going to go through tough times. So just expect it. That's the world. We live in a world where that stuff happens. Thankfully, he didn't end the verse there, though. He said, but take heart because I have overcome the world. In other words, you're going to go through tough stuff, but stay close to me and I'll help walk you through it. It doesn't mean you're not going to go through it. It means I'll go through it with you. So I think that's an encouraging thing to know, that he's available and that this is the world we live in and that he told the truth. Second point of light says evil was not created or caused by God. And this is kind of answering a challenge because some people say, well, wait a minute. God created everything, right? Yes. Well, there's evil, right? Yes. Therefore, God created evil. And I understand the simple math of that. It just misses some points. Here's what I think the truth is. God did not create evil, but he created the potential for it. And he had to if he was going to create real people like us. And here's what I mean by that. I think God wanted to create beings who could genuinely love him and receive his love and be in a friendship or re relationship with him. Um, but think about relationships. Think about love. Love always involves a choice, and it's a real person who has the ability to choose love or not to choose love. That's what a real, you know, you can't have a loving relationship with a doll or a puppet or a robot. God didn't want a world of robots. He wanted real human beings who could respond to his love and love him back. So he had to create us with the ability, not only to love him, but inherent in the ability to love is the ability to not love or not follow or not have relationship. Now, some people say, well, why couldn't he just create a world where everyone always chooses what's good? And I, you just break that down for me. So he's going to create us in a way where we have to choose good? Think about that phrase, have to choose 
No, it's either have to, which then, which case it's not a choice, or you choose, in which case you didn't have to. That's what he had to do if he wanted real, loving beings. Think of it another way. Do you realize love is always voluntary? We put it a different way. There is no such thing as forced love. Norman Geisler says forced love would be rape. It's not really love at all. If it's forced, it's not love. It's an oxymoron. You know what that is? It's where there's a phrase with contradiction of terms. The classic one people like to say is jumbo shrimp. Is it, well, is it jumbo or is it shrimp, you know? Um, one I like is country music. Either it's country or it's music. <laughs> okay. So I, I, I knew better than to use that in Texas, but I thought I could get away with it in Indiana. All right, but you get the point. Contradiction of terms. Forced love is a contradiction in terms. There is no such thing. God could have forced us to comply, then he wouldn't have had human beings. Or he could allow us to truly love, which meant we weren't forced, we were free, and we've abused that freedom and rebelled against God. That's how evil came into the world. God didn't create it. He created beings who could you know, exhibit it or, or actualize it into their lives and into the world. Uh, Satan did it before us, the fallen angels. You know, the Bible talks about that as being a very real thing. Uh, they did it before us, but we did it in the human race. And before we get too angry at Adam and Eve, you know, they started it, but we've all perpetuated it. And that's, that's the situation. God did not create evil. He created us good and told us to do good. And uh, we've disobeyed him. Thankfully, he didn't leave us there. But I'll, I'll get to that in just a little bit. By the way, so here's a question that often comes up. People say, well, wait a minute. God, he, he's supposed to be omniscient, right? He knows everything. If he knew we were going to disobey him, then why did he create us in the first place? I had a woman ask me that at, at the church I attend in Denver recently. We were just walking by each other. She said, by the way, Mark, why, why would God create us if he knew we were going to disobey him? And I just looked over my shoulder. I said, why did you have kids? <laughs> Think about it. Didn't you know any of you parents here or future parents? Don't you know when you have kids you're bringing another sinner into the world? You know there's going to be some measure of disobedience and and evil and you know sin and why have kids well the answer is because there's potential for much greater love and relationship well that's why god created us so god did not create evil we brought it into the world through our disobedience third point i think is worth pointing out because people sometimes they act like the suffering we have in the world it's you know god does all this stuff have you ever thought about this third point of light? The cause behind most human suffering is human. I mentioned the earthquake in Taiwan. Bad earthquake. I mean, those buildings were like this. Shockingly, the death toll was pretty low. Now, maybe I saw an old report. I, I looked it up today, and I saw, it said 14 people killed, and it was something like 200 uh, injured. Now, maybe it's more than that now. It's, it's bad. I mean, I'm not saying it's good, but I mean, the Las Vegas shooter did triple that damage in, in moments. Human-caused killing. 
One person went through, and this is, you can't scientifically, mathematically get an exact number on this, but he, he tried to estimate based on numbers of people who died through natural calamities uh, like earthquakes, fires, floods, or tornadoes, and so on, versus human-caused suffering. And he estimated that about 90% of suffering is human-caused. 90% of death, human-caused, you know, when someone dies prematurely. Um, Dinesh D'Souza wrote a book called What's So Great About Christianity? And in it, he estimates, get this, he says, uh, in the past hundred years ago, just go back to the 20th century, um, the, the most powerful atheist re regimes, which is communist Russia, communist China, and Nazi Germany, have wiped out, as a quote, have wiped out people in astronomical numbers, uh, focusing on those big three alone, which is Stalin, Hitler, and Mao, uh, we have to recognize that they have murdered more than 100 million people. So what we do to each other is far worse than what nature usually does to us. That kind of gives me a new perspective on the Ten Commandments. You know, growing up, the ten, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. It's just like God's trying to kill our fun. And he's, no. Take a look again. In light of the numbers I just gave you, and God says, thou shalt not murder. God wanted to prevent what I was just talking about. It wouldn't help the 14 people in the earthquake this week, but it would have helped the many in Las Vegas at that shooting. It would have helped 100 million plus in the 20th century, killed under these evil regimes. God's not, when he says, thou shalt not kill, he, it's not only you telling you not to kill someone, he's telling other people not to kill you. God cares enough about us. He says, don't steal, not just because he doesn't want you to take people's stuff, he doesn't want people taking your stuff, or your wife, or spouse, and so on. God loves us enough to say, evil is destructive, you know, Stop hurting each other. Even starvation in the world. You know there's plenty of food for everyone on the planet if we could just care enough to get it distributed to the people in need. Again, that's a human issue. So before we shake our fist at God, we need to look in a mirror and say, how much of this did I bring on? Even when someone gets lung cancer and they've been smoking 40 years, it's easy to blame God. But you know, we do things to ourselves often. And, uh, you know, and that's not to be harsh with someone who's suffering, but just to say, be careful before you point the finger at God. Fourth point of light is, and this is kind of the outflow of the third one, we live in a fallen world. Um, you know, the third point said we cause a lot of evil, and that's called moral evil. The fourth point is that we live in a fallen world, and that's often referred to as natural evil. If you go back to the story in Genesis of Adam and Eve, they sinned, they brought moral evil upon themselves, and as a result, God cursed the cosmos. And he said, you know, because of this, here's what's going to happen. And there were a bunch of ramifications. This brought natural evil into the world. So it's, it's kind of a byproduct, product, again, of our disobedience to God. The fact that we live in a world that is not the way it is supposed to be. People say, the world's not fair. That's true. We live in a world that 
isn't the way God wanted it. You know, we don't live in the Garden of Eden anymore. Now, thankfully, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but he's going to restore things at one point. But right now, we live in this parentheses period that is screwed up. And again, before we blame God, just look at the story, how we got this way. I like what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. Uh, He says, uh, All creation is eagerly waiting for that future day when God will reveal who His children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. So again, Paul's just explaining there in Romans 8, the world's not right. If you think it's, it's bad, you think it's unjust, you think it's unfair, you think it's evil, you're right. And it's, you know, one translation says, all of creation is groaning you know, under the burden of sin and moral evil and natural evil until that time when God will restore all things. Now one thing, I would, just caveat I want to put on this point, that doesn't mean when someone is suffering it's because of their sin. Uh, I don't know if you remember this. Jesus addressed that in Luke 13. People were saying, well, who sinned? This guy or his parents? You know, like when he's suffering. Uh, They talked about a a recent event where a tower had fallen on 18 people. And they they said to Jesus, who sinned? That guy or his parents? Jesus said, neither. You you can't do that kind of math. We live in a world where it's not a one-to-one correlation between what we do and what happens to us. We live in a world where we're all affected in various ways by the poison of sin. So, we live in a fallen world. Let me go to point five. That says, God will. I mean, this is kind of good news. Kind of. Um, God will finally judge evil. And When someone says, you know, if God was really holy and really powerful, he's really good, then he's got to deal with evil. Why doesn't he deal with evil? Well, if, if that's your bent and that's what you're hoping for, good news, it's coming. But be careful what you wish for. You know, let's not rush God on this. Um, as, as it's been said, you know, there's little evil in all of us. If God came and wiped out all the evil tonight at midnight, how many of us would be around to watch Good Morning America the next morning, you know? Uh, be careful what you wish for. But the Bible says, and it's very clear, that there will come, even though we live in an unjust world, He will ultimately balance the books. There will be a coming judgment. And for those who turn to him for his grace and mercy, that's really good news. And for those who have suffered, I heard about a story about a a young kid who uh, fell at a very early age and was horribly hurt and went through surgery after surgery after surgery and spent, I think, the majority of his young life in the hospital for various treatments and surgeries. And uh, a pastor interviewed him and said, how do you feel about God now? And he said, well, I think God's good. And he said, I'm glad to hear you say that, but I'm just curious, how, how can you say that when you've spent like half your life suffering with all of these physical problems? And the kid smiled. He said, well, God has all of eternity to make it up to me. And that's the hope for those of us that follow him. That there will be justice, there will be reward, there will be this balancing of the book, of the books. 
But in the meantime, why does God keep putting up with all the stuff that happens? Well, the Bible has an answer. 2 Peter 3.9. Peter says this. He says, uh, why is uh, God... Uh, no, here's the verse. It says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. But he is, and here's the key word, patient. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. The reason God hasn't brought judgment yet might be because of you. Because he loves you and he's waiting for you. He's saying, come home to me now. Hurry up, you don't have forever. Um, and it's probably because of some of our family members and some of our friends and co-workers and classmates and neighbors who God you know, says in John 3.16, he so loved the world that he died for them and he's waiting. He, it, there's another verse that says, he, uh, well, the one I just read is good. He's, he's not, he doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants them to come to him. Thankfully, God is patient, but he will finally bring judgment. Sixth point of light points out that God is not just some objective observer sitting on his throne in heaven watching us struggle. He struggled too. He suffered with us and for us. First of all, the, the Heavenly Father, I just quoted the verse, John 3.16, God so loved the world, so loved us, in spite of the mess we've made of our lives and of the world, He so loved us that He sent His Son, His only begotten Son, to suffer for us, to be our Savior. Now, if you're a parent, especially if you have one child, can you imagine that? I mean, talk about suffering. It's like all these people are bullying your kid, and you send them out to, to deal with them and try to help them. I mean, that's suffering. But more than that, think of Jesus, the holy, sinless Son of God. And by the way, he, he, you know, a lot of people think of Jesus as beginning when he was born on earth. No, that's when he took on human nature. But Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity who existed in holy bliss and fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit for all of eternity past. And he was willing to come down in this mess and take it upon himself. It says that he came and became sin for us. In fact, let me just read, I uh, love this passage. In fact, Nabil Qureshi, this was one of his favorite passages. It's a creed in Philippians 2. And this is the uh, New Living Translation. It says, though he was God, it's talking about Jesus, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God, or in other words, with equality with the Father, as something to cling to. Even though he'd been equal and in heaven for eternity, he didn't want to hang on to it, but rather it says he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself. He, it was bad enough that he humbled himself to, you know, hard enough, I should say, that he would come and be among us and among the moral filth and, and suffering. And, but it says he even took the final step of humbling himself in obedience to God to die a criminal's death on a cross for us. 
I mean, I, we just can't comprehend this, that the Holy Son of God would take on sin, would become sin for us. You know, we think about his physical suffering on the cross, which was hor- horrific. But I think the moral suffering was far worse for a holy being to carry it on his back. Every bad thing all of us have done, put on the back of Jesus on the cross. God suffered in ways we can't imagine. Uh, That's why I like what uh, theologian Peter Kreeft says. He says, ultimately, the answer to the problem of evil is not an answer. It's a person. It's answered in the person of Christ who became sin for us. He became, he carried evil for us. And because of that, we can now, when we're struggling and you know, suffering, we can go to him confidently. And I want to read a couple passages back to back from Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4. It says, It was necessary for him, Christ, to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that, listen, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Says, since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are tested. He understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet without sin. So here's the conclusion. It says, so come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will find mercy and receive grace to help us when we need it the most. We have an empathetic, compassionate Savior who not only loved us before he came, but he gets it because he's gone through the, the stuff we're dealing with. And so he understands what we're going through and he can be empathetic and merciful and loving toward us. And finally, point seven says, God can bring good out of bad. You know, the, the hard things we're dealing with According to one of the most exciting verses in the Bible, Romans 8, 28, it says this. It says, God causes everything to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It doesn't mean he turns the bad things, you know, that they become good. They're still bad things. Evil is evil. But he somehow he does a spiritual jujitsu and pulls good out of it. And and by the way, that promise is for those of us that follow him. That's not a promise for everyone. But if we follow him, he can bring good out of it. And think about the cross. He took the worst thing that could possibly happen and brought out of that crucifixion the best thing that could possibly happen, our salvation. He turned bad into good. Joseph, you know, was sold into slavery by his brothers. But he ends up, through a a long, painful process, ends up in a position where he could save his brothers and his father and his family and his whole nation from starvation. And he said to his brothers, he said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. God can pull good out of bad. And uh, C.S. Lewis says that pain is God's megaphone to wake us up. The question is, and I'll end with this, the question is, what are we going to do? How, how are we going to respond? I hope these points of light have helped, but it really comes down to a personal response. How do we deal with the pain and suffering in our lives? 
And I think there's two responses. The first one, it's natural. I already said it, and we've all done it. And that is to say, uh, why, God? Why me? Why am I going through this? Why are you allowing this? And that's a natural thing, but if you get stuck there, you will shut down spiritually. You will stymie your growth. You may grow you know, bitter against God, um, and it ultimately is going to poison you. It's not going to help anybody if you stay stuck, especially when you start blaming God. So I would urge you, natural, you know, it's natural to say, God, why? But then as my friend Don Cousins, a, a, one of my first pastors uh, in Chicago, he said this, he said, we got to grow beyond the why God phase to the second option, the second phase, which is to say, what's next, God? What's next, Lord? I may not ever feel right about what happened. I may never get full resolution. I may suffer with some of these things throughout my earthly life, but I know you want to bring good. I know you want to bring healing. I know you want to bring uh, service or empathy or, or something good out of this, something beautiful out of it. And I think if we open our hands to God, then he can begin to work in us and through us and in the situation and bring beauty out of ashes. And I think of my friend Nabil. I mean, first of all, I think he's in heaven celebrating like never before. But I look at his wife. Uh, she had to deal with the loss of her young husband. And yet she's full of grace. And she's saying, what's next, God? And she's continuing his ministry. And she's getting his videos distributed. And she's coming up with new printed, you know, published pieces that they can use from things he taught. And God is doing amazing things through Michelle because she said, what's next? And that's my urge to you. And I want to pray for you. Let me just mention one thing. I think there's another slide. What I've taught tonight uh, is based on a book that I wrote called uh, The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. Uh, we surveyed a thousand believers around the country and said, what issues are we afraid of? And we collected those answers, and that's in this book. Uh, one of those chapters is the problem of pain and suffering that I just talked about. There's nine others. Uh, on the other side, uh, the book uh, Confident Faith gives 20 reasons for believing. And uh, we've got those out there. Cheryl's having a sale. So those are books that I think can really help us overcome our doubts and questions and I hope you'll use them. I hope you'll give them to young people in your life or friends that have these kinds of questions. And the last thing I'll say is I'm looking forward to tomorrow night at 6 o'clock um, at the East Campus, is that right? Um, where we're going to do an open Q&A. And this is my favorite thing to do. I love dealing with people's questions and objections. And I just want to urge you, uh, make it a priority to be there, but don't come alone. Uh, bring your friends, your, your one-lifes, your you know, people you're praying for, family members. If you have someone who like ridicules your faith and gives you a hard time for what you believe, bring them. Tell them, pick on someone your own size. Come on. Uh, it's going to be open question. And, uh, you know, pray for me. I need wisdom. But I've been doing this a long time, and I believe God's truth prevails. And bring young people. I mean, young people, you know, high school, junior high, college. I mean, the faith of students is under attack these days. 
So bring them, bring everybody, and let's pack out that place tomorrow night. We're going to have a great evening. You can ask your questions. You can ask your friends questions. Your friends can ask their questions. So I'll look forward to seeing you tomorrow night. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you didn't leave us with this question or this doubt uh, without giving us good things to, to understand about you, about why you allow some of the hard things in this world and in our lives. Lord, I pray that what we've said would draw us to you and that we would always get to that point of saying, what next, Lord? Please grow me, teach me, stretch me, use me. And I pray that we would be faithful followers of yours. And I also pray for tomorrow night, Lord. I pray that it would help many people overcome their doubt to become more confident in their faith. And uh, I pray that people would even come to Christ tomorrow night. So we commit it to you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.